0: Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ sports and recreation organizations in the Washington DC area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies women's rugby club and rogue darts.
0: And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team D.C. and I'm a diehard sports fan. I have played with many of the Team D.C. member clubs, including the D.C. Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the D.C. Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side.
1: We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers welcome everyone laura and gabe here we are back it's march 29th and you are listening to the season two premiere of under the bleachers on this podcast we take turns and this week it's gabe's turn to choose our topics for our discussion of all things queer he chose the rise in lgbtq country artists for our conversation on all things sports we're talking about march madness and six nations rugby and for our topic at the intersection of sports and queer, we're talking about 1950s high school track stars. After that, we're going to share our interview with soccer star and author, Joanna Loman.
0: First, a quick update on Team DC. Team DC and its member clubs continue to partner with Nelly's Sports Bar for the Heroes for Heroes campaign, funding free meals to DC's frontline workers. Recent meals were delivered to firefighters and EMTs at Battalion Station Number 4 and Engine Company 11. Clients and staff at the Wanda Alston House and staff at Whitman Walker Health and Children's Hospital. For a starting donation of just $50, you and your organization can help sponsor one of these meals. If you're interested, please contact Brent Miner at brent at teamdc.org. As COVID restrictions start to ease, member clubs are beginning to increase some activities. Be sure to follow Team DC and its member clubs on social media for updates. Find Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Twitter and Instagram. At Team DC.
1: Gabe and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Taking the extra few seconds to hit those buttons or type a quick review means a lot to help us get the word out. And share us with a friend or two if you know people that would be interested in listening in. With that, here's Gabe with our first topic in this week's trip Under the Bleachers.
0: First up on our queer topic. Okay, so much has happened since we took our season break, but I want to talk about something that hits close to home. All right, so a little bit about me. I grew up in deep South Texas, and I was raised on a steady diet of country music. Queer country artists and songs have been around for years. In 1973, Patrick Hagerty paved the way for gay country singers by releasing Lavender Country, which is seen as the first openly gay country album. In 2006, Willie Nelson released a cover of Ned Sublette's 1981 Waltz Cowboys are frequently, secretly fond of each other, which is a personal favorite. Y'all need to check it out. And in the most conservative Christian South and West, queer country was always seen as taboo. But recently, there's been an explosion of queer country artists hitting the mainstream. Artists like Canadian Oliver Peck, Little Nas X, Melissa Carper, Trixie Mattel, Ty Herndon, Brandi Carlile, T.J. Osborne, Brandi Clark, Shelley Wright, a whole bunch are just taking over the airwaves. And we have straight allies like my one of my favorites, Casey Musgraves, are also using their music to shine light on queer topics. We've gone from gay artists being hated to now being celebrated. So I'm asking Laura, is country music the next frontier of LGBTQ activism? And I know you lived in, or you grew up in northern New York, but how do you feel about queer country and are you a queer country fan?
1: <laughs> okay. First of all, I grew up in central New York.
0: Let's just get <laughs> that out there. It's still, it's the north. You're, you're, you're a Yankee.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, If that's what we're, if that's what we're talking about. Way, way north of the Mason Dixon. Um, No, I don't listen to country music. I never have. Never, um, not growing up for sure. It just wasn't popular. Um, And I haven't really gotten into it. I love Brandi Carlisle. She's one of my favorite recording artists of all times. I would not put her in the category of country, although she has a new collaboration Band that she's in called the High Women that I guess are more country than anything else. Um, Yeah, I don't know anything about any of these people that you named. Uh, I've heard of Lil Nas X, like I know who he is and I know that terrible song. Um, (laughs) Tricks and a new song is from RuPaul's Drag Race, right?
0: But she has a country album.
1: Okay, so so I know who that is, but I don't know who any of these. I thought Ty Herndon was the guy from that. Trading Spaces (laughs) show where you redecorate each other's house. I don't know. I don't know who any of these people are. Uh, Have you seen Oliver Pack? (laughs) I I do not know who that is. He's amazing. I've definitely never heard of any of these other people. That said, I do believe that music and musicians are one of the most important uh, avenues that we have for activism and messaging. So, you know, I'm all for it. And, you know, I'm sure they, uh, to each his own. You're into country, then I'm sure that Brandi Clark is up your eye. I, I don't know. I got nothing to say on this game.
0: <laughs> okay, so, yeah. So, we have Oliver Peck, who, if you've seen him running around, he's he was actually in another band under a different name, but um, he wears this Lone ma- Ranger mask with, like, fringe on it. But even, okay, so the cool thing is that they're actually starting to write songs, like, from the queer perspective. So, i did i told you about melissa carper who she's one of my favorites like so her new album is daddy's golden country and daddy is her nickname because she's kind of like this butch lesbian but all her songs are written as if you know the the love interest is another female which is blowing people like country minds away (laughs) same thing with uh tj osborne he's from a band called the brothers osborne he came out last month actually was on the Ellen show and everything big deal because they had always hinted or he had always hinted about it and he said you know I was I was you know gay all my life I just was afraid of coming out because you know Nashville and the the country scene in you know so these are kind of like really conservative parts of the deep south and you know the west uh, but his videos with him him and his brother have a band called the the brothers Osborne um, and they had videos of like mixed race couples and like gay couples and lesbian couples and everyone this was blowing people's minds because they're like you can't show that on television what are you doing oh
1: man well here's the thing that i think is great right like we live in a more global world of, of a more integrated society now so artists like this don't have to depend solely on the VJ at the local radio station in Nashville as their only opportunity to get their music out. They have all these more avenues that they can use now to reach fans and so it opens up the possibilities of people being their more authentic self which is obviously a great thing and I applaud everybody who chooses to, you know, use their voice however they want to use it. I think it's awesome. Um, I will say, like, even though I think other veins of music that are, like, more popular, um, in other areas as opposed to just like super conservative areas it's not as if there are that many pop stars who sing about lgbt you know i remember when that um mary lambert song came out where she was overtly singing about another woman and everybody was like you know kind of blown away by that because even though there were plenty of gay pop stars it was still unusual that the lyrics of a song would be so overtly queer mm-hmm. um Because I think people have always felt that if they wanted to be commercially successful, they had to appeal to the quote unquote normal, the quote unquote, you know, what is the the what is the standard? Yeah. And it's great to see that people are realizing that, you know, first of all much higher percentages, higher and higher every year percentages of people are identifying as somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum as we grow and evolve and realize that uh, sexual identity is not a binary choice. Um, But more importantly, people realize that the human condition is relatable regardless. I mean, a love story is a love story. And just because you might be a woman singing about another woman doesn't mean that straight women don't get it or, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's all, these are human emotions and human uh, experiences, not necessarily um, something that only a gay person can understand. So it's great to see that we are evolving as a species and finally catching on to the fact that we're all human and we can appreciate the art created you know by other people even if we're not exactly the same as them
0: yeah the, so there's a, a really cool video about patrick Hagerty because he's he, people refer him as the first like openly gay country artist in the 70s and how you know his first album only did a thousand copies they were kicked out of bars thrown out everybody hates him uh and he just said how hard it was but you know what? He was like, you know, fuck you to the critics. Fuck you to everybody else. I'm these stories need to be told. I'm a gay country artist. And you know what? This is what I want to talk about. This is what I want to sing about and do. And that, yeah, that paved the way for all these people. And uh Trixie Mattel talks about it, but uh, some of these other artists, how that influenced them. And, you know, they went back to stories of what happened in the 70s and 60s and <laughs> And we're inspired by it, which is great because it's always great for especially, you know, us in the younger generation to go back and listen to stories of what people had to go through before
1: Yep, no, and appreciate
0: true. it even more.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Um, and I'm probably not going to start really listening <laughs> to a lot of country music because it's just not my thing. <laughs> but if country music is your thing, I'm glad that you are getting to listen to more queer artists because queer artists are talented, too. <laughs>
0: Yay.
1: Yeah, no. Posit- positive start to the season, Gabe. I always <laughs> like a good queer story where we're not being oppressed. This is exciting.
0: All right.
1: <laughs> so now tell me what's going on in the world of sports.
0: Okay, so there was two big sporting events that are, one's going on and one just happened and one's starting, so I couldn't choose. So I decided you to too. So uh, moving on to my sports topic. Uh, first, I want to give a quick congratulations to the Wales National Rugby Union team for winning the 2021 Six Nations uh, Rugby Tournament, which we call what, Rugby Christmas. We talked about it in the last season. Uh, it's a big, crazy what, two-month-long tournament that's been going on for years. Uh, anyway, so it's a big deal. So congratulations to them. They're, uh, yeah, so the Welsh team... Uh, were crowned as the winners after France took a devastating loss against Scotland, which was kind of funny seeing my Instagram blow up with all these Welsh fans wearing kilts because they <laughs> wanted Scotland to win.
1: I mean, I want to interject that France losing is never devastating. like
0: I- Well, for them, because, I mean, they could – they had a know, chance of winning. I know,
1: but I got to tell you, those French rugby players are the most annoying rugby players. <laughs> like, I, I, they don't I, scrum. I, yeah, I do not find it devastating when France loses. Um, well, it's
0: I, devastating for them.
1: I think the tournament was a little devastating for Wales because they were one game away from a perfect tournament and yeah. they lost it in the final series of the game. Thanks in large part to a couple of red cards, they were playing down two players at the end of the game. And they gave up a a try at the very end of the game and and lost by just a couple of points. And that was the only game that they didn't win in the tournament. But um, it was a fun tournament. It always is. Congratulations to Wales. Suck it, France.
0: (laughs) Uh, Good try, Italy.
1: (laughs) And the Women's Six Nation is starting this Saturday. Yeah, so. April 3rd. Um yeah so check it out if you haven't watched rugby it's some of the best rugby you'll get to see all year.
0: And everyone's hot.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. There's a lot of attractive people.
0: There's yes. also
1: a lot of not so attractive people, but you know, it's like anything.
0: There's someone for everyone.
1: There are I do I have to say one of my favorite things to look at is rugby thighs.
0: Yes. <laughs> so, if your thighs and rugby butts, hey, <laughs> there you go. All right. So, in stateside, uh, there's this uh, little thing called March Madness that's back uh, after a one year hiatus. And we're knee deep in the Sweet 16 and Elite 8 because uh, this- Uh, So it's it's going on both in the men's and women's uh, NCAA Division I basketball. Baylor, Illinois, Michigan, and Gonzaga are the top seed for the men's division. And Stanford, South Carolina, NC State, and UConn lead the women's seeds. Both tournaments have had a few hiccups. There's still a whole bunch of code restrictions, and that's uh, making each tournament for the first time in history uh, stay in one state. So all the men are playing in the state of Indiana, which has never happened since the tournament began. Um, And it's been very interesting because even with the women's, like my uh, college alma mater is now hosting division one women's basketball, which it's never done before, but it's also posing some strains with some of the universities trying to figure out how to create semi quasi COVID bubbles in their areas, but they're getting it done. Um, And also there is that little snafu with the weight room debacle for both the women's and uh men's tournaments in san antonio but luckily there's some sporting goods uh stores that stepped in and helped right some wrongs that were going on all right so both duke and kentucky failed to qualify for their first time in the tournament since 1976 and there's been huge upsets but and march madness brackets are being busted left and right there's been a huge number of upsets and four teams seeded 13 or lower have won their first round of matchups So which teams do you think are going to face off in Indianapolis and San Antonio? Uh, I don't know. We'll find out this weekend. Uh, So Laura is your bracket busted. I know you were freaking out about Syracuse and some other games that you're watching.
1: Listen, I, I mean, let's be on March. Madness is one of my favorite things. Syracuse is plays tonight. They're in the sweet 16. They are considered a Cinderella story because they came in as an 11 seed, but I, as a girl from, Central New York. Uh, <laughs> I uh, am a huge Syracuse fan and I watched Syracuse get better and better as the season went on and played their best basketball the last three weeks of the season. So I, for one, am not surprised that Syracuse is in the Sweet 16. I had them in the Sweet 16 in my bracket. Um, so that, you know, so that has not been a surprise for me. That said, my bracket is just as busted as everybody else's. I do still have two Final Four teams alive, so I'm happy about that. And I, my national champion team is still alive, so I am further ahead than a lot of people I know, but my bracket is just as messy as, as everybody else's. Um, I think there's a lot to unpack here. We should pause for a second, slow down, and not gloss over the gender Fight that was that was uh,
0: interesting. <laughs> I, yeah, that's why I was like, it, I had to mention this.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't just a weight room snafu, right? Like, you know, thanks to social media, people can take photos of what's going on and post them and get them out to the masses quickly. And so the pictures of that the women took of their quote weight room, which consisted of like four oh, one rack. Like, I have more weights than that in my freaking basement (laughs) for the entire you know women's field and you know and it was crazy but and it wasn't just that right I mean all the facilities um the women just never get any respect and they never get any of the resources um and there's a lot of arguments about revenue this and other things but you know at the end of the day things sell when you promote them and the ncaa yeah. doesn't promote women's sports they never have they don't do it it's garbage and they don't you know they don't treat the women um equally or equitably so it and it's and it's an important issue it's something i've been um and i i found it encouraging to see some prominent male athletes speaking out about this and taking this as a serious issue um it's great that some sporting goods stores stepped in and threw some weights into the gym for the women players so that they could get some workouts in, but it shouldn't have come to that. The NCAA yeah. needs to have a reckoning on this and needs to um, you know, figure out a way to treat women athletes uh, better.
0: Well, because the thing is, it's not like San Antonio has never hosted an NCAA championship before. So they're they're a championship city. There's only a couple in the country. So they've done this. I have attended two. like it's lunacy. It, it's crazy. There's no, excuse. no, And they were saying it's it's oh, it's covid and it's spacing. They are in a huge convention center. And I but that's the great thing. Even I love photo, how people you No, know,
1: but even the photo that they showed of the weight room, the room was enormous, it was enormous, empty, like, that's not a spacing issue. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, no. And and honestly, the the excuses and the bullshit are the worst part of it, because it, until people take these issues seriously, it's not going to improve and glossing over it by throwing some weights in the room thanks to Dick's Sporting Goods is, is the worst thing that could happen because then nobody is held to account and nobody is forced to take it seriously and there's no reason to believe that anything will change going forward. So hopefully the pressure stays on on these issues. But all that having been said, I don't want to I don't want that to overtake the excitement of what has happened in the last couple of weeks and what will happen in the next couple of weeks because the games have been amazing. Um, the brackets on the men's side are crazy. There's a lot of teams that are, you know, surprising a lot of people, and it's. it's did you
0: awesome. see that? Did you see that one sportscaster that he uses Microsoft Paint to do the highlights because he can't get the rights <laughs> to the basketball highlights? That. It's they're actually fantastic. <laughs>
1: Well, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. I mean, Syracuse, like I said, plays tonight. They play Houston. That's going to be uh, their toughest game yet. I think they've got a chance. It all is going to come down to how hot B- Buddy Bayheim is. If he's shooting well, I think uh, Syracuse can take that game. Uh, if not, you know, this was a great run for the Orange. But I, uh, I think Gonzaga is at this point the odds on favorite to win the tournament. Frankly, they always were. But now with all the upsets clearing their path. Um, That said, I actually picked Michigan to take it all. So we'll see. I mean, I thought it was a crazy (laughs) pick when I made it, but it's looking a lot less crazy now. So we'll see about that. On the women's side, it's much more typical what you expect. We always expect to see UConn in the final four for the women. And Stanford and over the last couple of years, South Carolina has really become a powerhouse. So that's all pretty typical, but great basketball being played. Don't miss, uh, don't miss it. We're uh, going to be coming up this week with the elite eight. So lots yeah, of I mean, to
0: I'm checking it out. I think Obama has Gonzaga and Baylor and he's usually done okay with these picks. So let's see what happens.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, they'll be cutting down the net soon. And what's this? <laughs> What's that terrible song they play? It's like one shining moment or something.
0: Yeah. One, mo- one moment <laughs> in time. One No, moment. it's
1: not. One more. Game. <laughs> <laughs> ah, oh, that's no, no. You just won not. the
0: final four. Where are you? <laughs> I'm going to Disney World. Wait, that's Super Bowl. Never mind.
1: Well, all right, but no, honestly, the tournament has been amazing so far. We missed it completely last year, so we've been really treated so far this year, but more great basketball still to
0: come. We uh, love sports, and I'm glad they're back.
1: Yes, 100%. Um, so, Gabe, what's happening at the intersection of sports and queer this week?
0: All right, so I was scouring the internet, and I found this one story that, that was really cute, and uh Yeah. Okay, so for this week's topic at the intersection of sports and queer is a story that took 63 years to reach a happy ending. All right, so there's a 79-year-old comedian and California State Assembly member named Tom Ammiano, and he finally received his varsity letter from the Immaculate Conception High School in Montclair, New Jersey. At age 16, Ammiano earned his letter in 1958 after placing first in his final one-mile run of the season. He was promised a varsity letter But on the day of the awards ceremony, Amiana was notified that his win was being wiped off the records. School didn't give a reason, but he knew that it was because he was, quote, a little weird and different. He was always growing up uh, being kind of like a bullied, skinny, little um, queer kid. And he picked up running because he thought, you know, hey, I don't have to deal with the jocks and the football kids. I can just run and be an athlete. So that's what he did. Uh, But, yeah, for some reason... His, his final win, where he was supposed to get his varsity letter, was just wiped off. They didn't talk about it. So Amiano was hum- humiliated by what happened and remained closeted until after graduation from college in 1963. He moved from New Jersey to San Francisco, where he became a teacher, LGBT activist, and the president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and ultimately a California Assembly member. And he's also a comedian. In 2020, Amiano published a memoir called Kiss My Gay Ass, where he revisited the trauma of high school. He was interviewed on a local radio station, and a listener was moved by a story and wrote to the high school. The school forwarded the letter to the Alumni Association, who then got in contact with Amiano's now 90-year-old coach and a former teammate who supported his athletic accomplishments and agreed he should be awarded his varsity letter. Caridad Rigo, the school's president, is planning to make a trip to California in April to finally award Tom Amiano his varsity letter and track. So I thought this was a cute little story. <laughs>
1: Tom Amiano. No, seriously. Let's uh that's awesome. Um, I guess. I don't know. The whole thing is very strange. It's uh good for Tom Amiano. I <laughs> hope that uh, you know, getting this letter makes him feel like he that he can finally put this terrible chapter behind him. Although, let's be honest, it sounds like he has lived a really great life and didn't um you know, let this negative experience from his childhood, you know, hold him back at all. But it does make me think maybe I should write a book called kiss my gay ass. I don't know. (laughs) It's
0: it's one of those cool stories where it's people just take this trauma and yeah, it affected him for years. But after that, he just said, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to use this negative experience and make, be positive. It also reminds me like just people be nice. Like you don't know. How one thing that you might do might affect someone for years to come. And it could be something small and, you know, even just words that you say and things that you do can affect someone, you know, for years.
1: That's right. Treat people the way you want to be treated. No, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And kiss my gay ass.
1: Treat people the way you want them to treat your best friend. And treat yourself that way, too, because, you know, we all deserve uh, we all deserve to be happy and to be treated with respect and love. And if having a, you know, varsity letter is important to you, then get yourself a varsity letter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I read this. It's good to know, like, look, Gabe, you and I, we talk about this a lot. Team DC has a mission to improve uh, inclusivity, LGBTQ inclusivity in sports, and to spread the word through the LGBT community that sports is a place that is accepting of our community and welcoming and can be a place where the LGBTQ community can thrive. And it's important to do that. spread that message because historically it hasn't always been the case and this is a perfect example I'm not remotely surprised that what sounds like a Catholic high school in small town New Jersey was not super gay friendly in the 1960s late 1950s that doesn't surprise me one bit and I'm glad to see some progress here we are in 2021 (laughs) okay that's this week's under the bleachers roundup of things queer things sports and things at the intersection of sports and queer we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to share our interview with lgbtq plus soccer star activist and author joanna loman All right. Welcome back to Under the Bleachers. Today we are joined by Joanna Lohman. Joanna Lohman is a retired professional soccer player. She played soccer at Penn State and was captain of the Nittany Lions from 2002 to 2003. She earned a 3.98 GPA while obtaining her business degree, resulting in her also being a four-time academic All-American. She started her professional career with the Washington Freedom and finished it with the Washington Spirit, announcing her retirement from professional soccer in 2019. From 2000 to 2005, she was a member of the U-21 U.S. national team and served as captain of the squad through 2003 to 2004. She trained with the United States women's national soccer team during the 2004 Olympic residency training camp and has nine caps with the senior team. Since retiring from professional sports, Joanna has focused on activism. As a leader in social justice, she partners with organizations around the world to advocate for inclusivity, equality, and gender equity. As a proud member of the LGBTQ plus community, she has been a featured speaker sharing her own personal story of being an out and proud professional athlete. Joanna's new book, Raising Tomorrow's Champions, is on shelves now.
2: Hey, Joanna. Thanks so yes. much for being here. Thank you so much. And you know what? I love when people bust out the, the college GPA. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's really just
2: like inspired me. <laughs> I was just like, come on, man. Like, first of all, who was the guy who gave you an A minus at like one thing? Well, this is a great story <laughs> because I actually got one of my worst grades in like the quote unquote easy athlete class because I didn't bother to study. And then I kept like busting out C's on the test. Full blame for my five point zero two. Um, that didn't allow me to get the 4.0. Oh, it was
1: a trap. It was definitely a trap. Uh, well, it it was damn impressive to me, nonetheless. So I made sure to, to stick it in there. Um, well, you are best known for being a soccer player. So let's hear the story. How, When and how did you first get involved with soccer?
2: I started playing soccer when I was five or six years old. And I just played as a part of a neighborhood team. Growing up, I was quite the tomboy, so I got to play on my first team with some of my best friends, and the coach was actually my best friend's mother. Which, looking back, I felt like I had so many strong female role models that were close to me that had an influence that I think they never fully understood. Um, you know, my soccer coach, my first soccer coach was a woman. My swim team coach was a woman, and they were just badass females and. Mm-hmm it i think it really made an imprint on me since i was a kid that women could do anything and having a soccer coach at five or six years old and playing in my local neighborhood i think was the most organic and best way to start
1: yeah no that's awesome i don't think i had a female uh coach until varsity so yeah it's that's pretty It's quite unique i would say at that age yeah that's awesome
0: cool so do you have any uh favorite coaches in your soccer career
2: I definitely, you know, in my book, raising tomorrow's champions, uh, I write a sidebar for each chapter, and one of my sidebars is about a coach that I had named Mr. Winston. And for those who have read the book already, they always say that it's their favorite sidebar because Mr. Winston pretty much trained me to be like a lean, mean running machine, and he was a father of one of my teammates. Um, and this was like the the day and age of of healthy soccer parents who didn't like hover around your practices, so. It was just so cool for me to see him busting out these laps. And this was at a point where I was really trying to make the U.S. Women's National Team, even the youth levels. And I thought to myself, OK, this guy could really help me. Um, he could help me to become you know, a really good runner and also to a very fit player. So we trained for years and years together, probably from the age of about 14 until 18. And I write about him glowingly in the book because uh, one of my favorite memories is that in the winter he would run with socks on his hands <laughs> so I've, I've since taken, that, taken that habit to wear socks on my hands in the winter when I run, but he was just such a tremendous role model and had an amazing influence on my life. He never took a penny from me when we trained, he ran next to me. Most of the time, you we were often sprinting up ridiculous Hills. So I just felt like it really helped to build my resiliency going forward.
1: Yeah, that's great. Did he know at 14 that you were destined to be a professional soccer player?
2: <laughs> you know what? This is the beauty of it. I don't think he cared. <laughs> and I think he just enjoyed, he just enjoyed kicking my ass. And I think he appreciated my dedication of, you know, on the side, going to see him and and running some ridiculous workouts. And I always felt like if I could survive one of his workouts in the summer, then I could do anything. So that was, that was the true beauty of it is that we just had a connection human to human. And it didn't matter if I played for the national team or not to him. And I recently sent him a book and he was just, he was so touched by what I wrote and he was so impressed by the book overall. And he said that I was changing the world. So to make Mr. Winston proud, really, it made my heart swell. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome for one of your uh, sort of childhood heroes to, you know, praise you like that. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so coming up, who, who were
2: your greatest inspirations? I think that's a great question. I, you know, looking back, the 1999 women's world cup team just exploded into my life and it was almost, it was unexpected and also too just a great surprise because as a player in the DC area, I got to actually go to the white house to see the 99 women's world cup team when they came to visit with bill Clinton and the moment that they walked off of that bus And to be quite honest, like I hadn't watched the team very much. You know, I watched the World Cup, but I wasn't this diehard um, soccer player who watched all the weekends and, you know, you didn't really have access to the women's game. So Mm -hmm. it really just expanded my view of what I could do with my life when I saw them. I was so impressed by the way they held themselves, the way that they spoke and getting to be so close to them and seeing all of us like fangirling over them, I think really gave me such inspiration to want to be in their shoes one day. So I think the answer to that question would have to be the 99 women's world cup team.
1: Yeah, no, that's cool. How, what about what age group were you at that point?
2: So I was born in 82. So I was about 17 years old at that point when they won the world cup high school, but yeah, wait, where you were almost ready to make your own move
1: towards the national team.
2: Exactly. And I think at that age, you really need that extra bit of motivation because before, and it always has been, you know, a beautiful game to me. I just, I love to play, but going into college, you really need to kick it into another gear. So I felt like it really motivated me to take on that, that next step um, with my full heart, body, mind, and soul.
0: What kind of non-athletic skills or traits do you think helped you become a professional athlete?
2: You know, this is something that we talk about in our book. I played every single sport growing up. And like I mentioned before, growing up, I was friends with most of them were boys. And we would we would play rugby. We would play football. I can't tell you how many times I get home and have like a bloody nose or a bloody lip. I also had a had a brother who was three years older than me who would sing this great song to me. Uh, he would sing, I am the best. You are the worst to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> <this> is <laughs> Sounds like a brother. (laughs) (laughs) It was was very humbling, let's say. So I got to play with him, his friends. He was very welcoming in a sense of, you know, I played all the sports with them and I I never backed down. They didn't back down against me. So I felt like athletically speaking, I was very well-rounded. And even up until I was a junior in high school, I ran cross country. I played basketball. I played soccer. I swam growing up, tennis, like you name it, I did it. And I think that's something now that kids are missing in their, in their lives. There's so much emphasis on being this elite athlete in a single sport when I, when I really believe it's a detriment to the kid. And that's also something we talk about in raising tomorrow's champions is just the, the, the power of, of being a multi-sport athlete at a young age. It just, it just makes you a healthier human being, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, there's definitely, I think, a trend towards specialization younger and younger um, with kids these days. And, I, you know, I think I would have missed um, the variety, you know, when I was growing up. Um, not that I was ever going to be a pro at any of the sports that I played, but um, I always appreciated doing something different
2: every season. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's important also to do an individual sport, right? Like running cross country. It was so hard. You guys, like every race, I'm like, Joe, you can just stop. Like, you don't have to run this <laughs> fast or this long. Like, yeah. like the, the mental, the mental strength you need because you have nowhere else to hide. Right. In team sports, you can blame other people and you can hide in, in the group, but in individual sports, you just can't, and you have to step up um, and perform. And I think that added so much to my mental game.
1: Yeah. Well, so playing so many sports and focusing on sports so much, did you feel like you had to sacrifice any part of your sort of grown up experience
2: that some of your peers got to have? You know, yes and no. I think I did have a lot of commitments when it came to sports and I, I did miss things here and there, but it was more of a choice. And I think that sport helped me to make better decisions. And it really was a path that I was made for. I, I wasn't very interested in, you know, going to the mall or the movies. I still had a great group of friends and I think we really bonded over playing sports together. So I I didn't feel like I had to miss out on things. I actually felt like I was part of a community that was, you know, playing football on the weekends, street hockey on a Friday night. You know, it was just, it was so, it was so wonderful and wholesome, you know, it was just incredibly wholesome and You know, you guys are going to laugh at this, but I grew up in a neighborhood called Sherwood Forests and my pool was called Robin Hood and I lived on Loxley Lane. So it's just like, it's like, you know, can you script it any better than that? Right. Like, so lived
1: in a Disney movie. Yeah,
2: (laughs) exactly. Exactly. So we can just leave it at that. But yeah, it was, I didn't feel that way. I felt like I was doing exactly what I wanted to do.
0: So you're recently retired, but what would you consider your highlight of your career?
2: (laughs) Uh, gosh, it's it's interesting because I do so many speeches now and I speak so much on failure. So that's like when I think about my career, I think about all the times I have failed, which is a lot. I can't even count it on two hands, you guys. So, you know, I think the the best part of my career was just coming back and playing for the spirit. 2015, 16, 17 and 18 were just like such beautiful years of my life, um, especially 2016. We made it to the NWSL Championship. And uh, that team that year with Crystal Dunn, Allie Krieger, it just, we were such a strong outfit and we dominated the league that year. Uh, sadly, we lost in the final and that's another speech I have on failure. But, you know, the whole, the whole journey of, of being a starter for most of those games, my parents were able to come to the games, my friends, my family, it just... It was, it was a year that I, that I remember saying to myself, like, it's never going to get better than this. And I was almost terrified because I was so happy. And, you know, not to put a damper on this, but it never did get better than that, right? Like, that was really the highlights of my career. So I'll never, ever forget that 2016 Spirit Team.
1: Yeah, I mean... This the confluence of being able to be sort of a hometown hero, you know, and have your family right here so that they can make it to all the matches it's just got to be such a great added uh, bonus to the experience.
2: It really was and had a very up and down career like I, the year before that in Boston. I didn't play very much, you know, I went through a lot of years where I sat on the bench and. You know, I really, I took a chance going to the spirit, I was never promised a single minute, but I, I played so well that year that you almost couldn't put me on the, you almost couldn't keep me off the field. Right. Like I forced the coaches to put me into those games and I was super proud of that. And to know that, you know, I was part of a championship team was just, it was a really special year for me. Awesome. Awesome.
1: So we know you um, and love you as an out and proud member of the LGBT community. Uh, What advice would you give young LGBTQ people who might be nervous about participating in sports because of their identity?
2: I know that's a very real feeling for a lot of young athletes. You know, I think what I would say to them is, is be yourself and be yourself as much as you can. And if you aren't in the right group and you aren't being treated well, then find you know find a different community, find a different group, but there will be a space for you that is safe and there needs to be a space for you that is safe. So um, keep searching and keep trying for it because sport is, it's so powerful in a sense of what it gives back to us. And I, I wouldn't want an LGBTQ plus individual to lose out on those opportunities. So, you know, be yourself as much as possible um, and try to find that right environment where you feel safe and and proud to step onto the field. Well, that's great
1: advice. Um, We definitely want to talk about your new book, but before we get there, are there any highlights or um, things you want to share about the many um, exciting things that you've been doing since you retired?
2: You know, I think just talking about the book would be the best thing because, it's i spent all of last year working on it and we've interviewed so many incredible people for this book you know 150 plus um from 1985 on the us women's national team up into the current team now and you know guys it was so cool because it was like doing a dna test it was like a 23 andme me test <laughs> for me as as i was going through these interviews because i'm talking to players like michelle akers april heinrichs like the pioneers of the women's national team and you know, as much as I knew about the history of the team and as much as I appreciated Title IX and the opportunities that I have, it's not until you hear the stories directly from them that you you understand how you were made, right? To hear Michelle Akers tell a story about, you know, elementary school and standing up in front of her whole class. And she's just like incredibly shy. She stands up and says, when she grows up, she wants to be a Pittsburgh Steelers. She wants to be mean Joe Green. And her teacher's like, what are you talking about? You can't believe football. <laughs> And she's like, (laughs) yes, I can. And get sent to the principal's office. You know, it's, it sounds like something small, but it's something so big that I now have so much more respect for these players that came before me because I realize they are the true trailblazers. And, you know, I don't want to sell myself short. Of course, I've put in so much time and energy into making this trail a little bit wider and blazing it further, but the the way that they have united against you know all of this resistance they've faced since you know day 1 is just so incredible so i'm i'm excited to share these stories that we have in this book and for parents and athletes to read you know what it what it takes to to become a champion and what are the realities of of what a sport journey could look like all right
1: very cool well the book is called raising tomorrow's champions um, and it is out now um, what what made you want to write the book? What inspired you to sit down and write the book?
2: I think as a professional athlete you know after before you retire and after you you think about what your legacy is and I felt like I was one of the lucky athletes that was ready to retire and got to make that decision myself i wasn't forced out due to injury or because of of mother time you know i I realized I had a an opportunity to make a greater impact off the field. And so, you know, through the 16 years of my professional career, you amass like so many experiences that you just want to share because they're so unique and they're so valuable, but really how do you how do you find an outlet for those lessons? And I just felt like this book is the perfect way for me to share the own lessons that I've learned through through the sport of soccer and my career, but also glorify and put on a platform the stories of so many other amazing women and parents and coaches and mentors. So it was the perfect mix of being able to get to share my journey which you know I wasn't necessarily a heralded player so I you know I call myself a tater tot compared to these big fries but <laughs> um, <laughs> you know I still I still have so many incredible stories to share. So it was a great way for me to To get those across, but also in a way where I was highlighting and uplifting the women who who enabled me to be me.
0: Yeah, throughout your career, you've been sharing these stories, I mean, around the world, because didn't you do some work with some uh, NGOs in India and some other places? Yeah,
2: yeah, I've I've done so much work now with the Department of State as a sports diplomat. Um, I've traveled to over 45 different countries at this point, and I've spent pre-COVID, right, the last four years in um, sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, all of those trips and what I've learned and the perspective that I've gained to be a female athlete in the United States of America, especially one that's pretty gender fluid, it's just, you know, I have so many incredible, you know, memories and experiences that I want to share because they're very relevant to t- to today's kids and their own journey.
1: Yeah. So, again, the book is called Raising Tomorrow's Champions, and we know that um, it focuses primarily on members of the women's national soccer team. Um, Of course, not every kid is going to grow up to be a national team player. So,
2: how is the book relevant for all the other kids out there and the parents of all those other kids? You know, that's a a very true statement. Not every kid dreams of making the national team. But what's cool about this book is that every kid and every parent can benefit from the lessons of these players. and their journeys to make the national team. But also we, we focus on players who didn't quite make it right. The players who have struggled or made it almost there, but couldn't really, you know, get over that tipping point. And those stories are equally important because who they've become doctors. Um, we talk about Coco Goodson, who made it professionally, who never played for the national team, but she's the first female Lieutenant of the 82nd airborne. You know, I think the message is playing sport. it, gives you an opportunity to really absorb so many characteristics and lessons that serve you in life. And if you're willing to take that journey, it's going to give so much back to you regardless of how far or how far you make it, right? Health benefits, mental benefits, physical benefits, and the power of of sport transcends the level that you actually achieve, right? Even if you play into high school, into college, in this book, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you understand the grit, you understand what it means to quote unquote win and then live an authentic life.
1: Yeah. All those lessons and all those things that you help you become a champion,
2: you can apply those everywhere in life, not just to a national soccer team level play. And what's cool is that you'll read in these stories that no national team player had it easy, right? It's never a linear line. There have been so many situations of, of struggle and, having to overcome demons, right? Like with Abby Wambach, uh, we interviewed her on her four-year anniversary of sobriety. Um, Shannon Box has an incredible story in there about her health struggles throughout her career. Becky Sauerbrunn, you know, who's struggled with confidence her whole career. You're just like, what? You know, like (laughs) Becky Sauerbrunn, captain, like the captain and- you know, Rachel Bueller becoming a doctor after her career, and she had a couple of hard years to end it. You know, the red card where she felled Marta, and then you know, all these stories that are so profound when it comes to life, not just on the field, but off the field.
1: So the book is out now. Do you have any projects on the horizon that you're excited about jumping into and you want to
2: sort of preview for us? So you know, we're really going to hit a big push for this book. Um, a lot of media hits and uh, just trying to build the awareness. But I'm hoping that this is the first of many books and uh, just an arm of what I want to build going forward. You know, it's very difficult with COVID because you can't really travel, you can't go places. But I'm hoping to visit youth clubs all over the country to get to speak to parents in person, have them meet, you know, me, meet Paul, my co-author, and be able to really learn from this book. Um, So that would be my dream, you know, to start getting a little bit of book tour or speaking tour and fingers crossed as things begin to open up. You know, I would love to come if we have any listeners that, you know, have teams or clubs or any groups that they think would benefit from this book, I would love to come in person and just kick it with all of them. You know, it's it's fun. This book is fun. And there's so many aspects to it that um, you can pull out from the book, so I just I would love to be able to really speak to people about it. Tell us a little bit about Paul. Yeah, Paul is a sports journalist at heart, and he went to the University of Maine. We just spoke to their women's soccer team yesterday, actually, the Black Bears. and he act, now he is a he works at Glenstone Museum, which is in Potomac, Maryland, and he works in sustainability, so he's actually they call him the Godfather of lawn care, sustainable lawn care. And he is a soccer dad to Angie, who is 11 or 12 years old now, I think. And she's a true inspiration for this book, because you'll learn in some of the sidebars that Paul writes in the book, he was, you know, he was that parent. Uh, (laughs) He got kicked out of his daughter's game when she was eight years old, right? For yelling at the (laughs) (laughs) rep. He was, he was pushing for wins. And I think for him, he needed a reality check. And also too, he didn't know much about soccer. So he was getting so many questions about his daughter because she's quite good. You know, who is she playing for? She should do ODP. She should do N- NCSL. I don't even know the acronyms anymore, but he's like, what in the world are all these, you know, teams that my daughter could play for. So for him, it was a, I would say operation and discovery. And he was also a host dad to a spirit player. So he got to see, up close uh, and personal what it's like to be a quote unquote professional female athlete, which is sometimes very difficult, especially if you're living with the host family. So he speaks about Havana uh, Salon, who is his host daughter a lot in the book. So he really relays her, her experiences throughout the game. So for him, I think it was he really wants to learn more about how to be a better parent for, to his children. He currently has four kids, And he wants to be a better dad. So the intentions were super true. He's also a very, very good writer, a very good journalist. So this all kind of all the stars aligned for him in this project.
0: Cool. Awesome. So can you tell our listeners how we can get a copy of Raising Tomorrow's Champions?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. So our website, rtcsoccer.com. And you'll have two links to buy the book. One is for a signed copy. And the other uh, is a link to Amazon to get the book. So. Uh, we invite everyone to get it, and we're very excited for the world to read this book. Cool. Um, and do you want to tell everybody about your own personal website or any of your social yeah. media handles if people want to follow you? Absolutely. So I have my own website. It's JoannaLoman.com. Instagram, I'm JoannaLoman15. Um, Twitter is at JoannaLoman. Also on Facebook, JoannaLoman, and then uh, Raising Tomorrow's Champions is on all the social media at, uh, RTC soccer. So I hope everyone will follow us and, you know, we'll, we'll have some engaged content that we're continuing to create. We're writing blogs on our website and it's, it's good stuff. So I'm, you know, I'm really excited to create discourse, to create communication and conversations about the game because it's something that I'm so passionate about.
1: Great. Yeah. I uh, got my copy of the book, I read part of it and then I put it in the mail to my niece, who oh. is not a soccer player, but she's yeah. a softball player and getting, she's a junior. So she's about to, she's been doing some college camps and okay. looking to sort of move to that next step. So I thought she might get a kick out of that. So I can't wait to see what she
2: has to say about it. Right. I think this is a book that's applicable to to any sport. So I'm I'm glad that she plays softball
1: well we again want to thank you so much for joining us this has been a real pleasure but before we let you go I know Gabe is he's been asking me and he's dying to know <laughs> he wants to know if you've
2: always had such rad hair oh my gosh yeah and the different
0: designs and stuff I see y'all you know
2: I wish I could show you this one slot I've made for some PowerPoint presentations of my hair when I was a kid so when I was probably from as long as I can remember, I had this haircut called the, the curtains. People called it. It looked like curtains at your house, and I was also I was also known in the soccer circuits as the girl who always wears her hair down. I refused you guys to put my hair up in a ponytail, up until. And you had
1: longer hair. Yeah, long I hair. had longer hair. I
2: had the curtains, up until I was about a sophomore in high school. So. Um. yeah so no the answer is no I've ne- <laughs> I haven't always had this epic hair <laughs> I, I created the Joe Hawk in 2007 so it's, it's lived on since
1: alright well that is very cool
2: alright everybody check out Joanna online
1: and go get your copy of Raising Tomorrow's Champions now
0: thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org.
1: We want to give credit to Ralph Elston for the design of our logo. Also, our music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast, and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening.
0: Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.